I'm Richard Berfault, and I'm the Joseph P. Chamberlain Professor of Legislation at Columbia Law School in Columbia University in New York City. Richard, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast at the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. We're here at the fourth panel session on electoral design between personal freedom and political equality. What did you say and why? You were looking at the law in relationship particularly to the American political system. My focus was on the American political system and American election law. And I sort of, thinking about the theme of the panel, which is personal freedom and political equality, I thought about three different domains in election law, voting, campaign finance, and and lobbying. Lobbying is not technically elections, but it is about the, the ultimate goal of elections is influencing the political process. And I thought about the different roles played by equality in informing the law in, respectively, voting, campaign finance, and lobbying. And my conclusion was that equality plays a very big role uh, in voting, a much diminished role, but still some, to some extent present in campaign finance, and is pretty much not a presence at all in lobbying. And then I tried to explain why I thought that might be the case. If we don't think of politics in terms of one person, one vote, but politics being influenced by those who have money, that does lead to inequality in society. Well, there's certainly a degree. I mean, I think much of it is the question of what is politics about. If it's ultimately about the people to influence their government, then yes, that occurs in many different ways. It includes uh, both voting itself. It includes the ability to influence other voters to help to persuade them how to vote. And then it also involves direct contact with government. And yes, we have relatively equal ability to vote, but there is wild unequal ability to influence those who vote. Uh, Everybody formally has the ability to try and influence other people, but money allows some people to protect their voices so that they reach many, many more people. There's a lot of uncertainty as to how that works, as to how exactly what impact advertising has, how much paid advertising can sway voters, but there's certainly the case that some people have much greater opportunity to bring their message to the voters and others because they have more money. And have there been any legal showdowns or any legal uh, cases in America? You mentioned the Supreme Court Mm. and various rulings. Have people challenged the way politics is conducted and the influence of money? Yes, absolutely. It's really been an important important series of cases in the U.S., particularly the Supreme Court, over the last 40-plus years, really going back to the mid-1970s. And Michael Kang, my fellow panelist, talked about some of this. The Supreme Court has largely struck down the idea that you can limit campaign spending. You can limit the ability of candidates or independent groups to directly reach the voters, to directly campaign to the voters, on the idea that that represents, in some sense, pure speech, pure freedom, uh, and that there's no justification for limiting that. The Supreme Court has upheld limits on contributions that individuals can give to candidates the theory that that creates some danger of corruption. And the Supreme Court has also upheld the idea and that the government can provide subsidies to candidates, or increasingly, although this hasn't been before the court, many states and cities in the U.S. are doing it this way by giving, in effect, money to voters to give to candidates, that you can add some equality into the system by leveling up. And maybe to put it in a sentence, the Supreme Court is very hostile to leveling down measures of equality, is somewhat tolerant of so-called leveling up measures. 
Yes, you mentioned Seattle. Yes. So right now, I think there's an election campaign going on in Seattle. As you know, U.S. election campaigns are a lot longer than campaigns elsewhere. But uh, Seattle two years ago adopted a voucher plan in which every voter in the city will be given a certain amount of vouchers. I think it's $100, so I'm not not totally confident that's the amount, but which they can spend only by giving them to candidates. Uh, I think they're given four $25 vouchers. And they, in effect, they redeem them by giving to the candidate. And the candidate, in turn, can, I think, either gets it redeemed from the city treasury or can use it directly to pay an advertiser who then gets it redeemed. I'm not completely sure of the process. But the idea is to empower all of the voters in the city to make campaign contributions. And we don't know the outcome of that yet. But, but you mentioned your colleague, Michael Kang. Now, he talked a lot about Citizens United. Why is that important, the organization of citizens groups in politics? So Citizens United is the name of an organization, basically a conservative ideological organization that uh, had a number of goals, and one of its goals was actually to reduce campaign finance regulation. The case involved the question of whether or not limits on spending by corporations are constitutional. Supreme Court in 1976 had struck down limits on individuals but in a later case indicated that limits on corporations, which actually are much older in U.S. law, uh, are valid. And that was a case in 1990. In Citizens United in 2010, they returned to that issue and by a 5-4 vote said no, the limits on corporate spending are just as unconstitutional as limits on individual spending. Uh, The fallout from that has been a little uncertain in that actually relatively few business corporations actually engage in campaign spending. Mostly, they may be a little bit concerned about annoying the campaign winners if, they're, if they wind up backing the loser. They may be concerned about annoying their customers. But you do see it used to some extent by nonprofit corporations, ideological groups that take the corporate form. Mostly, Citizens United, the impact has been more, I think, uh, atmospheric. It's been followed by, not clear that it caused, but it's certainly been followed by a huge surge in the amount of spending by wealthy individuals. And maybe the thing that it legalized was the ability of wealthy individuals to come together in by organizing entities which are technically corporations. They're really committees designed to influence elections and to pool large sums of money. And that's probably where the biggest impact has been. As you said, Michael Kang talked about these wealthy people. He, he spoke of them becoming kingmakers, that you almost had a political system outside right. politics where wealthy people, regardless of what corporate organization they represented, could come together to distort the outcome of elections. And then he spoke about super PACs and unlimited amounts of expenditure and, and perhaps also being difficult to find out who's doing what because you spoke about lobbying but is twitter lobbying i mean how can you possibly in the age of social media decide what's fair and what's unfair these are all difficult questions let me just take a couple of them on the 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 question of the so-called kingmakers yes we've often used the term the wealth primary you know in the as you know in the u.s we for almost every election really has two steps there's a, the internal party election, which is a true election, in which the parties select their nominees, and then there's the general election. And there's a sense that private wealth actually matters a lot in the primary phase. Because in the general election, most voters will tend to vote their party, or to vote the party that they normally vote for. So there's a lot of debate as to just actually how much does campaign spending sway the general election. But in the primaries, all of the candidates are of the same party. All the Republicans, Republicans choose among Republicans and Democrats choose among Democrats. So there actually the availability of money can matter. It's not dispositive, 
but it can help a candidate. It can help a weak candidate stay in the race longer. It can help some candidate um, jump to prominence. And then, of course, the candidate actually has to keep winning votes. So I think the wealth primary maybe it more screens people out, I think, than coronates winners. But it is real. A super PAC gets at the idea that a PAC stands for a political action committee. And it's the idea that in the US, we have a long tradition of not just having political parties being active in politics, but we have all sorts of other organizations. Some of them are basically spin-offs of pre-existing groups, labor unions, corporations, ideological groups, and some uh, of them come together just for the election. The National Rifle Association. National Rifle Association, or the Sierra Club, and that's just to look on both sides. Uh, each of them uh, will have a spin-off organization, a PAC, that will engage in electoral activity. Before Citizens United, the rule was that the PACs could spend as much money as they wanted, but there were limits on donations to the PACs. The same limits that apply on donations to candidates also applied on donations to PACs. One consequence of Citizens United was a lower court ruling that said the logic of Citizens United means that these limits on donations to PACs, if all the PAC does is engage in independent spending, if the PAC doesn't give money to a candidate, but just spends money on its own on advertising, supporting a candidate or opposing another one, that PAC is not subject to donation limit, limits on donations to it. That's what makes it super. They could always spend as much money as they collect it just made it a lot easier for them to collect. Technically, they are still subject to disclosure requirements. They're required to disclose their donors and what they spend money that what money they spend on. There's another set of organizations that engage in politics. The PACs and super PACs, they're dedicated to politics. That's elections. That's all they do. There are other organizations that basically are hybrids. They do some elections and they do some other politics. They lobby, they engage in grassroots lobbying, they engage in we could call it a public education. It's obviously very loaded education. It's ideological education, but they put a message out about taxes or health care or nuclear policy or something. Their money is primarily not on elections. They're not treated as PACs. They're not, they don't have to register as PACs, and they're not subject to the disclosure rules of PACs. But they can still engage in elections, provided it is a secondary activity. We call those 501c organizations because of a provision of the tax code that makes them tax exempt, provided they engage in what's called social welfare activities. Some of them are trade associations, some of them are labor unions. And so these organizations, these so-called 501c organizations, they can engage in elections so long as it's a secondary activity. They don't have to disclose their donors. They do have to disclose the fact of their campaign ads if the campaign adds more than a certain amount, they do not have to disclose their donors. How fit for purpose is American law in deciding that all these various interest groups, whatever side of the fence you are, has proportionate influence, and that in America you can still boast one person, one vote? We can still say one person, one vote, but we cannot say one person, one equal share of influence. I'm not sure we could have ever said that. I think we'd probably say it less than ever now. Uh, there are the, um, the system is not designed to, to assure, far from it, is not designed to assure equal opportunity to influence the outcome of an election. It's, it's, it does, there's still ultimately equal ability to vote, but no, there's no guarantee at all of equal ability to influence the election. And has social media made that worse in the sense that, you know, Donald Trump built up a Twitter following. He clearly wasn't doing all the tweeting himself. He had a whole team and within two years became bigger than Fox News. 
social media just kind of opens up everything, good and bad, I think. It's very hard to regulate social media. Uh, it allows, it, social media it does allow people to come out of nowhere and get a message out and it can go viral and it does allow people to have a huge impact without a lot of money. And that's the funny thing about social media. Uh, people can, with money, can begin to use it to inundate debates. But you can also get very, very far in social media by spending very little money. For a while, people were seeing the internet as possibly a solution to unequal campaign spending because the internet is cheap. It's easy, it's, once you get your message together, it's as easy to send it to a million people as it is to send it to a thousand people. You can also manipulate the internet. So I, I don't, the internet provides another, and social media provide new avenues for influence, for good or evil. They are maybe small d democratic in that they do open up the process to other than big money. So maybe there's something to be said for that. So Walmart deciding, it, you know, it's not going to support anybody mm -hmm. who supports the national gun right. lobby, things like that. I mean, there is a kind of rebalancing going on within corporate culture and politics. Mm -hmm. But how fit for purpose is the law in America to cope with this and to keep up with it? It's not. I mean, we, we have a hard time passing campaign finance laws. We basically did it twice in a big way, once in the 1970s and again in the early 2000s. The technology has changed so much since the early 2000s. And the Supreme Court's position, it's uh, the current court's philosophy, and this goes back more than 10 years to the, really to the middle of the 2000s, so we're talking now about 13 years, is narrowly but intensely skeptical, somewhere between skeptical and hostile to campaign finance regulation. The philosophy of the five justice majority, and it's been true since about 2005, basically treats government as, as a greater danger than private wealth. They are just concerned that if government has the power uh, through the legislature, legislative process to impose real restrictions on campaign finance participation, it will operate to support the government in power. There's not that much evidence that that's how it works. That, uh, that there, or there's also evidence that the lack of regulation may, could also support the government in power, but they have a deep suspicion that real campaign finance limits, they're not opposed to disclosure. And my guess is if we improved our disclosure laws, they would probably support that. But that they are concerned that any real limits on money and politics will be designed, not just operate, will be designed to entrench the people in power. So perhaps we're just more transparent about it all. Perhaps it always went on in the past, but we didn't know who was funding what or, or you know, the influence that wealth had. So maybe we're living through social media in a more transparent and therefore by more optimistic age. I'm not sure about that. I think, I think there were all, wealth has always played a big role in our elections, and maybe the, the period of the mid-20th century, the latter, mid to latter part of the 20th century is an exception. Part of the problem now is against the, the, the weakness of unions as an offset to, to wealthy individuals. But wealthy individuals were very influential in American politics at the beginning of the 20th century as well. We had our so-called Gilded Age, when there was a huge amount of money for its time in politics. There was a time when what really mattered in politics was patronage. And the people who really worked on campaigns were, people, were government employees who were basically in there to save their jobs. Through civil service, we've gotten rid of patronage. We have limited some, we, for a period of time, we were limiting some money in politics. But it is hard to separate the political process from the surrounding society. And they interpenetrate each other. And the surrounding society is one that's based on capitalism and one that's based on unequal wealth. And that it's hard to, to put a, a real wall between the electoral process and that we've done it to the limited degree that wealth is not a criterion for voting. 
And the internet has created a low-cost way of people to participate in politics. But wealth is clearly still a factor. Well, we still have momentum here in the Labour Party, which was mentioned <coughs> by other speakers. But you've been at the two-day conference, yeah. the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. Just finally, was it good to draw economists, lawyers, political scientists together to look at society and inequality? Absolutely. I think we all learn from each other. I mean, it's sort of like um, the blind man and the elephant. We each have our hands on one, one person's on the tail and one person's on the trunk and, and one person is on the thick legs. Each of us, I think, has a handle on a particular aspect of social problems like inequality. And I think we can all learn from each other. It was also interesting to some people know a better sense of changes in technology. Some people had a better sense for developments in other countries. Economics, political science, law, sociology are valuable, as is the people who know uh, emerging technologies or emerging developments in other systems. And I think they all, all the knowledge together kind of reinforces each other and gives us a deeper sense of how things work and what are alternative ways in which things could work. And you're an optimist? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I'm cautious. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm a skeptic about predictions. I don't really know how things are going to go. So... Optimist is a hard word. It's a, it is a hard moment in time to be truly optimistic. Uh, you know, sort of hope for the best, prepare for the worst. <laughs> uh, Richard Bruffelt, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today. Michael Kang. And Michael, now you spoke at the fourth session, which was called Electoral Design Between Personal Freedom and Political Equality, here at the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. Tell me the title of your presentation. I'm not sure my presentation had a title, actually. <laughs> it was a summary of the way that campaign finance has changed in the United States over the last eight or nine years, and it's been a time of enormous change in campaign finance. And so I talked about Citizens United versus FEC, a decision in 2010 that changed the way that courts think about the corruption interest in campaign finance law. The short of it is that it's a much narrower interest, which means the government has a lot less room to regulate. And that has meant that largely independent expenditures, meaning campaign speech directly from individuals and outside groups, largely unregulated. It doesn't, it's not subject to, to disclosure. It's not subject to contribution limits and the money they receive. And it allows wealthy individuals to pour really tens of millions, if they wish, uh, into politics with little regulation or even disclosure if they don't want it to be disclosed. Is there any way we can measure the influence that corporate bodies or those pressure groups that want to influence political outcomes have now compared to the influence they had in the past? Has it grown greater? It seems like the influence of very wealthy individuals has grown quite a bit over not just the last five or eight years, but over the last 30 years. Uh, one of my favorite statistics is just how much money comes from the very, very wealthy at the very top, which is, I think, the top 0.01% of Americans, which is about 30,000 out of 300 million Americans, provide uh, almost half the campaign uh, money that's contributed at the federal level means that a very small number of people are providing um, a huge chunk of the money. And we see that in the political science. Political scientists measure influence. They look at 
policy preferences of donors and of constituents and where politicians end up. And what they find is that politicians map really closely to their donors and not so much their constituents. So we think that the, the influence of the very wealthy give money in politics as the amount that they're giving has increased dramatically over uh, recent years has resulted in politics that are increasingly polarized on partisan grounds, but also on ideological grounds. The reason that donors give money, we find, is that uh, they're ideologically motivated. This is what they want. They want politics. They want parties that are more divided ideologically, and uh, they're getting what they wish. And so these influencers, you've called these wealthy people kingmakers. Why are they kingmakers? Yeah, because uh, almost literally they are kingmakers in many cases, uh, especially I think on the Republican side where you've seen a lot of super, act, uh, super PAC activity. There are certain individuals like the Koch brothers, like Sheldon Adelson, Foster Freeze, who are able to finance somewhat indirectly through independent expenditures, but still very effectively an entire presidential campaign. And so what we've seen is nominees that in previous eras would have dropped out for lack of lack of financing. They just wouldn't have the donor base to stay in the race, and people would have abandoned them because they knew that they weren't going to win the race. Can stay in the race a very long time just on the strength of, of really one donor. And so in that sense, they, they're kingmakers. They, they make uh, any candidate into a serious contender for, for national office, and, and, and that gives them power that's really quite different than what we've seen earlier in, in the modern campaign finance era. And you talked of super PACs, interest groups that coalesce and get behind a candidate, which means, again, they can, can I use the word distort the outcome of the election? Super PACs distort uh, the, the political process in the sense that they don't necessarily represent a broad base of voters or even campaign finance donors that because they can collect money without any restriction. And really, uh, through a 501c sort of entity, it's, it's slightly different than a super PAC, but it's the same idea, uh, without even disclosure, uh, what that means is they can change the process. And they don't, uh, the candidates don't need a broad base of support. They can stay in the race and sometimes win just because of one or a handful of donors that can uh, be dedicated to supporting them, even when things don't look very good, and they really change the process uh, as a result. Well, we've talked about money influencing politics, but in Britain we have Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, and a a group called Momentum. And and they were a grassroots organisation. They grew up through social media Mm. and campaigning. So you don't necessarily need big money in the age of social media, or do you? That's right. I, I, think, I think you can have a populist campaign that has a broad base of support, and ultimately you have to get people to vote for you, and money doesn't always win. That, that's certainly true. Uh, so it's not to say that money is always determinative, but it's pretty important. You know, there's this idea that the most important things in politics are money, money, and money. And there's a reason why candidates focus so much on their fundraising capacity and how much they, money they have in the bank before they enter a race or think about how seriously uh, they can contend for office. And it does make a difference in a lot of cases, even if it doesn't decide every race. It's enormously important, and I think the changes in campaign finance law have enabled one or a handful of donors uh, to provide enough financing to, to vault into contention and sometimes victory candidates that otherwise might not have a chance. And so I think in that sense, it's really distorting. And then we haven't talked about, but let's finish, 
looking at your presentation on finance and politics mm -hmm. and the influence of finance and big corporates over politics. But Donald Trump, let's forget whether he's financed by Russia <laughs> or another right. nation, but, but the influence of Trump and his rise to power in America. And then if you have the latest shootings, you said in your state, mm -hmm. but, but you've also had corporates taking away finance and money from the gun lobby. What do you make of all that? There really is movements and counter-movements within American politics at the moment. Yeah, so I think a couple things. I think Donald Trump, a lot of people who were skeptical about the importance of money point to Trump because Trump actually didn't engage in a lot of fundraising. He, he got a lot of free media, earned media, where the news followed him around because he was a good story. I don't know that everyone thought he was going to win, but he was an interesting story and sort of sui generis to American politics. And so he's an example of a candidate who may not have taken the super PAC route. That wasn't how he won. Um, I don't think that disproves the larger importance of money or the changes, anything about the changes in campaign finance law. He's sort of a one-off candidate. That's an exception to lots of different rules. I think the recent shootings in the United States, we've had a, a series of them, unfortunately, and largely what they've shown is the power of the gun lobby, that the Republican Party will not budge on gun rights because they feel beholden to gun interests and gun owners for whom this is the most important issue in the world. And, and what we've seen is that companies have taken the lead and reflected mainstream opinion against gun lobby and against the Republican positions. And yet the Republicans seem pretty steadfast and defiant against public opinion and where companies are sort of trying to take them. And I think what it shows is that our politics are, are in, in some important measure, uh, broken. That these politicians whose job it is to be responsive to public opinion simply aren't listening and they're really captured by the ideological extremes of, of their base. And what about the role of law? Does electoral law help to balance and counterbalance these trends? Right now, I don't think election law does much to correct the polarization uh, in the parties. In fact, I think it probably contributes to it. And I think that's a problem right now in campaign finance, that as, as we've seen the deregulation of campaign finance over the last decade or so, it's made the problems worse, not better. And that's too bad, because there are opportunities where with the right election law, the politics become better, but that's not the direction we're headed. And so an optimist or pessimist? You sound pessimistic. I, I think I am pessimistic for the time being, but I think a lot of things change when the personnel of courts change. Uh, and, and so uh, you're always just a few appointments away from things changing. And in fact, just a few years ago, after Justice Scalia died, had President Obama been able to appoint a Democrat to that seat, you would have had an entirely different law, I think, as we sit here. So some of it's contingent on the vagaries of history and, and what happens in terms of appointments and elections. And so I, I wouldn't give up hope, but I think in the short term, you're not likely to see much positive change on campaign finance law. But equally, if I'm sitting at home with a group of friends and I want to counter the influence of wealth in American politics, I just form a WhatsApp group or get onto Twitter mm -hmm. or Facebook. Yeah, you have to be resourceful. I, I don't think money's going to help you if you're just an average citizen because it, it's, it's very hard to fight against uh, the kind of sheer wealth that the ultra-wealthy uh, can pour into, into politics. Now, it's on both sides, and so there, there's some sort of an arms race, and it's not necessarily one that Republicans are always going to win over Democrats. But on the other hand, it, it's hard for the average person to get heard uh, given the, the state of the law. So we don't have one person, one vote. 
We have one person, one vote. We don't have one person, one dollar. It's quite different when we think about equality in voting versus equality in campaign finance. We, we have, we strive for the, the, the former, but we don't have the latter. Okay, well, Michael Kang, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today at the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference at the fourth panel session, Electoral Design Between Personal Freedom and Political Equality. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you.